So it turns out that the Winter Knight and the Summer Lady teamed up to kill the Summer Knight to cause a major war between the fairy courts so that they could cause an ice age and end the cycle of seasons. Yeah, that was the ending of the fourth book. If you think that's bad, wait till you see what we do with the later novels. Oh, we also swear a lot. And I hate you forever, because you saw that, and I didn't. Hey, you know, I'm just, just a guy who's been lucky enough to see Roger Waters twice, you know, what can I say? Damn you. Hello, and welcome to I Thought They Smelled Bad on the Outside, a podcast that cleaves evil. Today, I have uh, some brand new shiny guests. How about they introduce themselves? How about you introduce us? You're the host. No, no, that's not how it works. Well, um, hi, I'm David. I'm known on the internet, uh, on Twitter as the great Mr. Chibi. I'm a fourth-year animation student at the Savannah College of Art and Design. I did the cover art for Iron Tyrants, Luke Meyer's fantastic giant robot role-playing game, and I'm a Taurus. My name's Chris Guanche. I'm the webmaster of Mecha and Anime HQ, MHQ.net, and the co-host of the Gundam podcast. And I'm a Taurus. Synergy going on here. And I'm Scott. I like long walks on the beach and scotch and i am a rabbit that's right different zodiac i'll let you guess the i'll let you guess the western one all right no no i don't have my chinese uh takeout placement with me to tell oh no uh it's terrible i'll tell you what it's not the same year that einstein was a rabbit okay so we're gonna talk about dresden files in a minute but let's start by doing pick of the week. Anyone want to go first? At my school, we do a, uh, a senior film, and uh, my senior film, I'm doing kind of a pilot for a kids' TV show because you know why not? And it's set in space, so I need to, I need to get some good spacey reference. Now, luckily, uh, SCAD has one of the finest art libraries in America, and you know I can peruse there for all sorts of wonderful art books, all sorts of wonderful reference. I've gotten uh, things from. Uh, classic Drew Struzan movie posters to a limited edition Japanese art book of Sid Mead's concept art for Blade Runner. But the coolest thing I found uh, is this book. And let me just look up what the exact title is. I don't have it right in front of me. It's called The Art of Osama Tezuka, God of Manga. It's a fantastic volume. It's uh, sort of a biography, but uh, it's also sort of a compilation of his life's work. Uh, if For those of you who don't know, Osama Tezuka is the guy who created Astro Boy, Kimba the White Lion, um, Black Jack, and he sort of founded the manga and anime industry. Like the book describes him, some people call him the Walt Disney of Japan, but he's... I would debate of, them heavily on that. Yeah, well, it's like... He's, uh, not just the Walt Disney, he's also the Jack Kirby, the Stan Lee, 
the Jules Verne, the Isaac Asimov, the Carl Sagan, the Tim Burton. He, the man produced, uh, I think, close uh, close to, if not over, like 100,000 pages of comics uh, in his life, uh, just hundreds of different stories. And this, and this book, you know, with these beautiful big illustrations, uh, goes through everything that he ever produced, all of his, all of his major characters, all the plot lines. It's a wonderful volume, and I just found out that on Amazon.com, you can get it for 20 bucks. It's this huge hardcover volume, and in the back, it comes with a super cool documentary that they, uh, that the Japanese NHK channel shot in the 80s, where they follow Tezuka around uh, for 24 hours. He goes to, like, an animation festival. He does, he draws uh, comic pages, and it was just... It's one of those those things that you never think you would ever see, and it was so cool to, uh, to watch. It's so inspiring. At the end, after they followed him around for 24 hours, he's gotten like three hours of sleep in this time. The crew starts to leave, and he sits down at his desk in his office, and they say, aren't you going to go to sleep now? And he says, oh, no, I have I have uh, 36 pages to draw for tomorrow. And he just breaks out a sheet of Bristol and starts drawing. It's like, oh, my God, this guy, uh, it's so inspiring, so cool. It's, it's such a great deal for 20 bucks. That does sound good. Chris, I hope you have something equally awesome, because I don't. Boy, I'd, I kind of deflates what I was going to say. <laughs> Way to go. Setting the bar high. You're never on this show again, Dave. I don't need to be. I already made it so good. Later. Well, my my find, um, although clearly not uh, with the same historical implications as, as something about uh, Tezuka, recently I started watching HBO series Eastbound and Down with uh, good old Danny McBride, who appears in many a comedic movie, such as uh, Tropic Thunder. And uh, if you like something that's really bizarre and very foul-mouthed and just crazy, then uh, you should check it out. It's a show where he's a washed-up, foul-mouthed baseball player who ends up moving back to his crappy hometown and becomes a teacher at a high school. It's just a really fun show, and the second season just wrapped up on HBO. It's out there, like, if you have on-demand on your cable, or I think uh, the first season's on DVD, so um, it's a fun show worth checking out. So so what you're telling me is it's the first, like, the, the setup is who's the boss, except it somehow turns into to- Tony Danza's current show? <laughs> I guess so. The, the thing about this guy is that everyone in the world knows that he's a has-been except him. So he still acts like he's on top of the world, that he's this, uh, you know, World Series winning pitcher, even though he's just, you know, a nobody now. So cheers. Yes, but a lot dirtier. Uh, Okay. And with naked skanks. I don't think I would have wanted to see anyone on Cheers naked. No. No. My pick of the week is going to be an independent role-playing game called Cypher. I've been reading it furiously for the past 48 hours because I'm interviewing them later. It's kind of... I think my pitch to David a few minutes ago was that it's like, if World of Darkness wrote the X-Men game, that it'd pretty much be this. It's this very grim modern-day game where you're playing psychics on the run from the government, and there's this impending apocalypse that everyone's trying to prevent. It's a pretty cool system. It's by the guys of Broken Meme Studios. I'll link all this, obviously. But I'm enjoying it. Alright, enough of this bizarreness. Let's go into our main topic for the day, Dresden Files. It's a series of 
12 novels, one short story anthology about a wizard who works as a private investigator in Chicago, and it is pretty awesome. Okay, well, I guess we should start with Harry. He's this very sort of typical noir PI type figure with the constant first-person narration of his entire life, and the trouncing around in oversized coats and permanently broke, very seldom lucky in love, and he's actually just a really fun character. He's an absolutely epic wise-ass, and you gotta gotta say something about a guy who will um, mouth off to Odin in his own office. I like that he did that, not because he actually felt like being disrespectful, but he felt, but because he had a precedent to me. Yes, I, I do. A bigger insult not to be insulted. Well, he's got he's got to maintain that reputation as like a grade A dick who uh, says whatever the hell occurs to him to no matter who the hell it is that he's talking to. And I mean, Odin did in fact just praise him for being a dick to pretty much everyone he ever met, including a couple of archangels. One thing that uh, I like about Harry is that he he operates with even though he he really doesn't want to say uh, uh, to admit it, he he really wants to play himself like he's uh, like he's really cool, like he's you know sort sort of like he he's not the good guy. He could be, he could be bad at any time. That he doesn't really care. He cares so much. You know, he he tries to paint the world in black in uh, shades of gray, but everything that he does is black and white. He, he never chooses to. Well, it's it's like in uh, uh, Star Trek when. Uh, the good of the many outweighs the good of the fewer of the one. No, he he will always go after uh, the one. Damn the many. I think that that that's really cool. That even though he wants to, I think he would be a lot more comfortable if he didn't have as strong morals as what he actually does. But he he that's just who he is, and he has to live with it. I don't know. That that just seemed uh, uh, neat to me. What well, one thing I'll like I'll also say I like about the guy is that he. Every book is him getting beat to hell and forced into and slowly forced into a corner, and then when the chips are finally down, he will do something borderline suicidal and completely amoral just to get the job done, and then beat himself up about it for two more books. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot to be said for just how much punishment Harry takes, um, because if he if he didn't, he would kind of be a terrible character. He would be he he would be like a like a, a Mary Sue. He would be the author uh, author inserting himself because there there's little uh, uh, doubt in my mind that most of Harry's views are the exact same uh, views that Jim Butcher has. But because he just gets trashed every single time, he has just the worst luck. Uh, and because things don't always go his way until the very end, he works. He works a lot better than what than what it probably should. Well, the thing about Harry is that that I like about him is that he's part of the Indiana Jones school of action heroes where you really see them taking their lumps and just how fragile they can be. Right, it's very, right. It is very rare you see a wizard spend most of the time most of the story bleeding or or being shot or having some limb broken or god knows what. And uh the other thing that really appeals to me about Harry as a character is 
you know, since most of these books take place like almost a year after the preceding one, you know, and we're up to 12 now, you really get to see him develop over the span of a decade. And he starts off at the beginning, the first book of Stormfront, as like such a screw up. You know, he takes like so many stupid gambles because he has no idea what he's doing. Uh, he doesn't figure things out quickly enough. He he's inexperienced, and then you see him slowly start to develop. Like, I guess even in the most basic level, like like a pain or pleasure instinct of all of the stuff I used to do, you know, doesn't go well and ends up causing me pain. Let me try to do things a little bit differently so I don't get as mangled as I usually do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the books have all been written in real time. You know. Yeah. That that's something I'll say in favor of the series is. There's piles upon piles of ridiculously long fantasy series, and every and then Robert Jordan died, and everyone's a little weird worried about all these other guys. It's like, is George R. R. Martin gonna finish? And I, I've lost all hope in George R. R. Martin. I'm sorry to say, as yeah. much as I love, as much as I love Song of Ice and Fire, and you know, as much as I'm looking forward to the Game of Thrones TV show, it's like this poor guy who, you know, let's be honest, he's old and he's fat. He's, like, written himself into a corner that he just can't seem to get out of. It's like he also has too many projects on his plate other than this. And, you know, like, when the hell is this book going to come out? You know, he's been promising it for God knows how long. It took five years for the fourth book to come out, and that's only half of that book. So, you know, for someone who's been reading the series for a long time like me, I've been waiting for ten years to find out what happened to some of the characters at the end of Storm of Swords who did not appear in Feast for Crows. I don't care if I get the book. Just tell me if Seaworth's okay. So, you know, thankfully, uh, that's not an issue with uh, Jim Butcher because he's, uh, he's a pretty young guy. and um, Well, he, he also goes at this like a machine. I mean, he puts yeah. out two novels a year and a pile of short stories. Which just came out in the uh, fine collection side jobs available now from Something Something Press. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in advertising mode right now. Uh, okay. All Apparently... Right. Apparently. I'm going to have to find some cheesy commercial music to go in the background of everything you say. Although it's funny you mentioned uh, Wheel of Time because I just finished reading the, the latest book uh, earlier this week. And, you know, as someone who's been following that series for a zillion years, um, you know, obviously there was a little bit of trepidation there about, okay, now somebody else is coming in to finish the series and who the heck is this guy? But, you know, I got to say um, they probably could, after reading two of his books, you know, in the Wheel of Time series, uh, they probably couldn't have picked anyone better to finish that job. Well, everyone else was a little freak, freaked out about Sanderson coming in to finish. I, on the other hand, had read Sanderson's first two novels when the, the news broke. My immediate reaction was, oh, so Wheel of Time's going to get good again. <laughs> well, you know, for, for me, um, I after I heard that he was going to be the person to finish the books, I was like, who the heck is this guy? Let me look him up. Let me read some of his stuff. But then just because one thing happened and another thing happened, time goes by, I never got around to actually reading anything of his until Gathering Storm came out. And I think that probably worked out better for me because I didn't go into that book of the mindset of let me try to see, like, what's what as I'm reading, like, what stuff did Jordan write and what stuff did this guy write? And try to pick out, like, whose style is whose and, you know, which part is written by whom. And, you know, I just went into it to read a Wheel of Time book, and that's exactly what I got. So I do intend to read some of his stuff now, but um, I think that worked out better for me in that respect than maybe for some other people. 
But so, anyway, that's another story. That, that's, 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 that's another story. podcast. We'll, we'll that's get another to, podcast. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to that. I'll get to that one eventually. Continuing with characters, um, coin flip here, Bob or Murphy? Ooh. Ooh. As in who's more awesome or, or who would I want to sleep with? Uh, let, let's go with who we talk about first. Well, you know, Bob does oh. give good head. <laughs> oh, psh. Wow. David, welcome to the second circle of pun hell. Oh, sir. Sir, I am, I am chilling in the seventh. Ah, the problem is that both, both have very clear associations in my mind. Because Bob the Skull reminds me of Murray the Skull from, uh, the, the Monkey Island games. Yeah. And everybody likes Murray, right? And Murray's awesome. Bob, yeah, and, and Bob is like the uh, uh, the soup uh, is like the really good comic relief. Like I wish there was a lot more Bob in these stories. I love it whenever he whenever he throws him in his uh, gym bag and drags him around, and so Bob's just peeking out of the out of uh, uh, one of the pockets, and he's just like, "Oh, hey, turn around! I want to I want to look at that girl over there, Harry. She was a knockout." But at the same time, Murphy's just great. Um, I felt like, by the way, uh, you guys, you, you guys are all caught up. You, you, you read a- Aftermath, right? Yeah, I've, I've read Aftermath. Chris? I have not. All right. Well, no spoilers. Aftermath, while, uh, it's kind of dealing with... The 40 minutes after changes. Yeah, but there's, there are no, there's no new information in Aftermath. I was so disappointed. I was, all I wanted was the last line to be, uh, Murphy looks up and... You're at least caught up with, uh, with changes, right? Yes, I read changes. All right, so Murphy looks up and there's Harry and he's a ghost and he's like, oh, "I'm a ghost," and, and Karen's like, oh, <laughs> "Just like that." What? Cut to black. Hey, you know? Murphy, I'm haunting you. <laughs> you know, just something like that, or, or, or like have just like little signs of Harry uh, showing up, like maybe appearing uh, number six style to Murphy or something. Giving her advice, something, something to make it feel like it actually was giving me more information. What it was well, from, was a nice little story about Murphy dealing with dealing with uh, loss, but unfortunately, that kind of nerfed her character. I felt like uh, he was writing her a lot more uh, damaged. Maybe you guys watch the anime. You are familiar with the Sundere uh, uh, character archetype. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, for those who don't know. Sundere is a uh, cliche that's that's kind of recent in Japanese animation. Uh, it's named after the two sound effects for yelling and crying. These characters flip on a dime between being really aggressive and uh, really hardcore, and then suddenly being these broken little flowers who need a big who need a big man to come over and cuddle them and let them know that uh, they are loved. Uh, the biggest Sundari of all is, uh, and kind of the first one is uh, Asuka from Evangelion, and I felt like they, he kind of Sundariated Karen Murphy, like you know she was always a badass and she always you know kind of held uh, uh, held back with her emotions, but you know just having her start crying all over the place, I don't know, it, it did not feel like the Murphy that I that I knew and loved, and maybe well, he's just not. Uh, as someone who hasn't read it. You know, my perspective on that would just be that, you know, we've never seen anything in, in the Dresden verse from anyone's perspective other than Harry. Well, the short stories are starting to branch out. Like, we've got one from Thomas, we've got one from Murphy now, and recently, that's not inside jobs, we have one from Marconi's perspective that I really want to read. To read, because Marcone is the best. 
Oh my god. Um, but yeah, getting into Murphy's head for uh, Aftermath was kind of neat, just because um, th- there's a lot of... Obviously, it's her sort of going through the seven stages of grief, and a lot of a lot of what she's thinking about is, well, Harry would have done this. I'm not Harry. Let's do this instead. Like, Ms. Guard sort of salutes her, and it's like she has this moment of, Harry would have said something ridiculous and anachronistic. I can only manage thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I really liked uh, just seeing how she fights compared to how Harry fights, because she doesn't have the luxury of magic. She, uh, it's, you know what the, it kind of reminded me of were uh, the X-Wing novels? Yes. Where, you know, it's it's Wedge Antilles. He doesn't have no no stupid force. All he has are his, are his ace uh, flying skills. And so it's, so it's so much cooler to watch, you know, Karen fight because she doesn't have that ace in the hole. She just has everything that she's brought, and uh, she's surviving by the skin of her teeth and, and uh, by long hours training and fighting. And I really like their romance. I, uh, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a big sucker for, uh, for romance and stories like this. Uh, last night, uh, or two nights ago, three nights ago, several moons, uh, there was, uh, uh, Psych just got its, uh, second, uh, second half of the fourth season, fifth season, second half of the fifth season just started up. And uh, I am a big fan of the romance on that show, and so it was so gratifying watching the uh, the characters flirt again, and you know, pay off. And oh, but so whenever the two of them are on screen and they start flirting around, they start having their emotional re- uh, interactions. You know, I can't help but but go, oh come on, Harry, go go for it, get her. And uh, so I, I really like their interactions. Um, so so uh, Murphy or Bob. Uh, I gotta go with Murphy. But yes, coming back to Bob, he also reminds me of, um, who was it? Mort from Planescape Torment. Who, whose job it was was to spend the first hour of the game being Mr. Exposition for everyone who didn't have a clue what Planescape was, which was, I think, 90% of the players. Oh, I have, I have a weird, a weird, uh, thing with Bob. I don't know why, but, you know how, like, when you read a book, like you hear like a voice in your head that you attach to the characters, yeah. just like how you like have an image of what they should look like that you attach to them, and it carries over as you read more and more. Uh, for some reason, whenever I read Bob, the voice that I hear in my head is the dub version of Gilliam the ship's computer from Outlaw Star. <laughs> Ooh, nice. <laughs> I don't know why it just it just. That's just the way it happened when I started reading it, and it's stuck with me for all the books ever since then. You know, Gilliam and Bob, they're both kind of guys who, like, matter-of-factly know everything and don't mind telling that to their boss, who gets easily frustrated by the fact that they don't know everything. I'm, I'm sort of hoping that we get a lot more Bob for uh, Ghost Story, especially because of some implications that were dropped in uh, the sort of margin notes of the Dresden Files RPG. What uh, would that be, since I'm not familiar with this? Okay, in the RPG, they're sort of talking about the rules for uh, surrendering. Like, there's actual codified rules for how to surrender to people. And they get to the bit of con- on concessions, and there's this little note from Bob. Concessions like this are why I'm stuck in a skull and not floating around freely. <laughs> and that's all you get. And I think Harry even has a note after that as, like, explain, question mark. And he's like, uh, what was that? How about them bulls? 
I, I also think my favorite Bob moment is still his explanation of why he prefers the female form, despite the fact that he is a genderless spirit. There's this long rambling about lines of form and beauty, and then Harriet comments, it's like, and they have boobs. Boobs yes. are nice. <laughs> hey, you know, Harriet, he's a man after my own heart, because I agree 1,000%. Here's a question. How do you guys take in your, your Dresden files? Do you read the books, or do you listen to the audiobooks? I always read. I'm not much of an audiobook person. You know, I don't mind listening to like audio things sometimes, but just for me, I don't know. It's I don't know if I would say like that listening to an audiobook is reading because I just prefer to, you know, I just like having the feel of a hardcover book in my hand and, you know, reading it and, you know, having it play out in my head the way I want. Chris, um I'm going to say I'm not a big audiobook guy either, but Give one of the Dresden Files audiobooks a try. Just because James Marsters does do a really awesome job as uh, reading it. What? Yeah, James James Marsters. James Marsters. TV Spike and Brainiac. And Piccolo. And Piccolo. (laughs) Okay, you you, you sold me. Yeah, he's actually, like, because the, the books are all written in first person, having strong character actor read them really helps, like... I don't think I could ever reread the first three books of the series, just because they really come off as weak compared to the most recent ones. But listening to James Marsters read them is hella entertaining. Even now, Jim Butcher is not necessarily the best author. Is he good? Oh, yeah. Is he fun? Sure. But sometimes the prose just falls a little flat. And, you know, he's still pretty young. he's still pretty new at this, you know. Uh, well, I guess it's been ten years, but... Still, you know, uh, uh, but every once in a while, like, the pros will fall a little flat. Sometimes uh, one of Harry's big uh, dramatic scenes will just be a little mm, melodramatic. But uh, when you have James Marsters reading it, he can he can kind of glaze over that. He can kind of um, bring it to a, uh, a certain, uh, uh, elevate the prose a little, because he has these wonderful inflections. Um, I went to go see him on a at a panel at the uh, Chicago Comic-Con, which was exciting because my, my girlfriend had just been, uh, had just watched through all of Buffy, and so this was the first thing, this was like the first convention she had ever been to, and we saw that Spike was going to be there, and she started nerding out about it, and it was so exciting to watch, uh, uh, to watch my non-nerd girlfriend just be like, oh my god, we have to go see him, and uh, so, and uh, a lady in the audience asked, you know, so, oh. Uh, how do you feel about the the Dresden books? Why do you uh, do the uh, uh, the readings? And he says, "Well, because uh, I really relate relate to Harry, and I really love these characters, and and they pay every me. single book. There's a scene that just sticks with me, and I can I, I can still remember them. And so it's it's really cool that he uh, he's not just you know like reading these for the uh, for the money or anything. He actually has gotten into the stories, and he actually cares about them, and he uses them as like an exercise for his acting abilities. He does all the voices too, which is really cool. Like uh, he's surprisingly good at doing uh, uh, the different voices and accents. It's really nice. Like that's that's why when you said that uh, you hear Bob the Skull as uh, Gilliam from the computer, I thought, oh, that's weird because. You know, I can never not hear Bob the Skull talking with a slight affected British accent. It is just because how of how he reads them. So how does James Marsters sound doing Murphy if he does all of the voices? Uh, he just, 
he just, he, you know, uh, he shifts it up little... and he gets a little breathier about it. I think all these women just tend to be breathier more than anything else. Which is the classy way of handling it. Now, when he gets to toot toot the pixie, that's when it gets funny. Yes, <laughs> my lord! Pizza lord! Rule of the Zylord's guard! There's ranks above general, my lord! The old winter knight never did anything, had any adventures, except going crazy. That counts, right? I like it. I like that Toot Toot has just paid off. Like, there's all these sort of one-off characters that come back every fourth novel or so, and when you do, there's this. Some of it's Jim Butcher sort of nodding at the audience, and some of it's just absolutely fun. Like having Toot Toot come back and just seem, he seems to get bigger and more kitted out and more ready to kick all kinds of ass. Oh yeah, because in the first book, he was actually kind of... He was played more like a uh, a classic noir kind of skeez, uh, a skeevy um, informant he, He's type. Vinny the Snitch. Yeah, exactly. But at, over time, he's gotten more and more childlike and more and more uh, adorable. Like, I, I can't wait for there to be, like, a, a little plush ver- uh, figure of him. Actually, um, someone made, like, a little Harry Dresden puppet. We saw that. Yeah, that was awesome. Now i got to find that uh, Tumblr picture again. I'd love to see uh, Harry Dresden puppet fight Angel puppet. Well, well, we know what Harry does to vampires. He he gets really turned on by them, and then he feels guilty about it, and then he blows them up. Yep, and then he collects the teeth. (laughs) Yes, and then he starts a war. Yeah. And then he ends a war. (laughs) Yes. He ends a war, he takes a life. Oh, God. You know, uh, since we've been going off on, on Bob and other stuff, uh, going back to Murphy, one of the things I also appreciate about her character is the way she's developed because, you know, in, in Stormfront, she's, like, very suspicious of Harry, and she's, like, very, like, hard-ass cop mode, and she's like, I'm taking you in because you lied to me and you withheld shit from me and yada yada. But, um, you know, as time goes on, you see, like, what kind of a person he really is, and she really starts to, like, trust in him. Mm-hmm. And they're, like their friendship and their working relationship kind of just becomes the same thing. And she goes from being someone who, um, you know, knows that there's weird stuff going on to like, you know, true believer suburban warrior fighting against all these supernatural uglies. I think uh, one of my favorite scenes in any of the books is when Harry finally turns his wizard side on her and, uh, he doesn't know what to expect, and he just sees this beautiful angel with a giant fucking sword dangling off her uh, off her waist, and he's just like, "Oh my god, this is who she is," and you know, and that that kind of colors who who Murphy is to him for the rest of the books. And so when she gets like the sword, and she is, and then that's what, it, and then it came to be true. Yeah. Oh my god, so fantastic. Speaking of the sword, uh, I guess we, that moves us to uh, Michael Carpenter. Oh, Michael is the best. I love Michael. Um, I'm a Christian, right? And it has always been a little uh, frustrating uh, seeing that, you know, in every single science fiction or fantasy story, the church is evil. And I can understand why. It's a big organization. People believe in it. It's the best sort of thing to have uh, uh, to tell a story about betrayal. It's like, oh, you believe that? Well, whoops. Actually trying to kill you. Actually trying to brainwash you. But after a while, it gets tired. It gets old. 
Um, it's why I got turned off of Doctor Who is because every time Russell T. Davies wrote a, wrote a, uh, a Doctor Who story, if there was a religious character, he was the bad guy. Every single time. Just go back and wa- rewatch. If somebody uh, puts faith in anything, they're either going to die a horrible death or be the bad guy. And it just got old. And so then finally, there's, and suddenly there's Mark, Michael Carpenter. And turns out, believing in not murdering and being charitable and uh, telling the truth is actually good for somebody. He actually does all these awesome things. He's ne- And he's never a prick about it. That's, that's what's really cool is that he never... Uh, he is never holier than thou. He might uh, he might look at Harry and be like, "Oh, Harry, why are you doing that?" But language, honestly, the Harry, right there with him. They're like, "Harry, why are you ha- uh, uh, talking to that demon in your head? Why are you doing that?" And I thought it was really cool that when uh, Harry was so scared about telling Michael that he had uh, Lashiel uh, uh, imprinted on him, and then uh, when he finally does, Michael's like, "Oh." We, we all knew, and we were just waiting for you to talk to us. I come from an organization. He's like, what? You're not going to kill me? He's like, no. No, we're not that stupid. And, oh, man, he's – I love I love all of the Carpenters. Uh, his wife, uh, Charity, is it? Charity, yeah. Yeah, Charity is, uh, is a badass. And uh, the one short story I really want to hear, the, the story of how he uh, – how Michael uh, rescued – Charity from a dragon, because that, that, that's like that one little piece of uh, Dresden lore that's always been kind of in the background whenever they talk, talk to one another. It's like, oh yeah, Mike, uh, Michael got his wife because he rescued her from a dragon, a real dragon. You're like, what? I want to hear that story, because that's so cool. Ah, oh, I love Michael. Now I'm all happy now. <laughs> happy about Michael. Uh, yeah, I do like Michael. I do sort of like... I like that he is uh, a great character who's, you know, religious without being a dick, and... Damn it, Chibi, I think you said everything. When you talk as much as I do, eventually you uh, you do say everything. Or, or, or more rather, uh, even, even a broken clock is right two times a day? Precisely. You know, the, the thing about Michael is, uh, as someone who's not religious at all, I really like his character because he very clearly is a man of his beliefs, but he's not preachy. You know, he never tries to force Dresden. You know, he never he doesn't proselytize. You know, he just makes comments here and there, you know, like like gee, you know, isn't it amazing there's all these coincidences that always keep saving your life and that you always keep doing the right thing and yada yada, but he never is like, "Hey man, you should convert and and be a Christian right now." Go with Christ, bro. Yeah. So <laughs> That's that. That's something that uh, that really um, sets him apart from a lot of other characters in in fiction, and also the fact that you know, um, you know, in a world of that's a lot of shades of gray, he's pretty clear what he is. You know, it's like you, you always know like what side he's going to be on. You know, there's no mystery around him. He's just uh, a good guy. He's a family man who also tries to save the world while raising a bunch of kids. That's like. That's actually a really cool point that the uh, kind of all the Knights of the Cross, or at least uh, at least the two who uh, uh, really hold their beliefs, um, Sonya is you know debatable. Sonya's awesome though, yeah, tiny but fierce. Um, but uh, 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 what was the name of the little Japanese guy? Shiro. 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 It, I love Shiro's uh, little arc because. He leaves, of any character who's ever been in uh, the Dresden uh, books, I think he's kind of left the biggest impact. 
on Harry's life. And it's not through anything that he said, but just through what he did and what he, and well, when he, uh, when he dies to, uh, uh, to protect, uh, to protect Harry, um, what, what he did there, that was, if there was ever a Christ metaphor you've ever read in print, that was it. You know, a good man gave up his life to save, uh, uh, to save people who didn't deserve it. And, What's so cool is that even though he never, nobody ever uh, stands out and says it, nobody ever says, you know, this is why he did it, that action alone has such an impact on Harry's thoughts. You know, whenever he thinks about the, the Denarians, he, he, he just becomes enraged because a good man gave his life. He, whenever he thinks about why he fights, it's because a good man gave his life. And it's like, uh, I, I just love that about, uh, about their, their little thing. And even like Father Fordhill. There's this, uh, uh, all of them, again, it's not that they don't preach their religion, but it's that they, they, they preach their religion not with their words, not by saying, oh, you're a bad person, you shouldn't do that. It's but because they actually act out what they believe, and it just leaves an impact because nobody else is acting like that in these stories. I also like Shiro's sort of story of his conversion. He's, he's <laughs> wandering around America in the 60s, and someone asks him if he wants to meet the king. Yeah, sure, I love Elvis. And then he gets baptized, and he's like, I guess I gotta roll with this now. How do you guys feel about Molly? Molly's kind of awesome. That doesn't exactly sound like a ringing endorsement. I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth kind on Molly. Awesome. She she sort of jumps back and forth between sort of being this really cool apprentice and a nice foil for Harry, sort of showing what Harry was when he started, really, and having him be mature and responsible and trying to do that. And every so often, she's like the annoying tag-along kid on everything. I- I'm not going to say she's freaking cots, but there there are some moments where it's like, God damn it, just, just hit the asteroid, woman. Wow. I would have never thought of comparing her to, to cots, of all people. I don't know. There's a lot of times where she's invisible in the back of Harry's car, and I'm like, really? Really? Dude, she's just like... She's just like the freaking the freaking uh, kid in the monkey from Speed Racer, not not necessarily cats. Maybe like, so. Oh look, it's the kid in the monkey in the trunk. What a surprise! Jim, but she's kind of hot. Yeah, but it's Dresden Files, and everyone Harry meets is hot. This is true. This is true. But she's awkwardly hot. What exactly is awkwardly hot? Well, because you know, he knew her when she was like seven. Oh, then that yeah. Harry is not Humbert Humbert. <laughs> I'm ho- what I'm hoping is that, since, you know, since the changes have occurred in you can uh, say it. Dresden Files, that in his absence, Mo- uh, Molly is really going to have to start stepping it up, and when he comes back, she's going to be a consummate badass. Well, I did I did sort of like the little bit at the end of Aftermath where Billy's talking to Murphy, Murphy and it's like, well, we got to cover her for him while he's gone. Want to do sort of Justice League Chicago, and Murphy dibs calls dibs on Batman, and I think I'm okay with that. I think yeah. Mur- Mur- Murphy is the Batman of the group. That's true. So I guess that makes uh, let's see now, Murphy would be the Batman. Um, well, only he was around, I guess Michael was the, uh, the Superman, kind of the Boy Scout. Yeah, he's the Boy uh, Scout. Yeah, but Michael's likable, where Superman's just uh, a, a freaking Gary Stu. He's he's a douche. We're yeah, not starting this. I will defend Superman to my grave. Okay, Michael is Captain Marvel. Fair. Let's go Fair with that. 
right. That also brings in a divine power source. Oh, nice. Nice. I like it. Yeah. Thomas would be the Flash. He's fast. Yeah, but the Flash is also fun. Like he he's the fun-loving guy. Well, then that would be uh that would be Billy. Yeah. Billy Billy would be the Flash. Okay, then Thomas. Well, Thomas started off being really fun-loving, and then he just got, you know, well, Anne Ricey. Yeah. Like uh, when he first shows up in uh what was it, the second or third book? Third. And Harry's dressed up as a vampire uh, at the vampire ball. And, you know, he, he he steps out, and everyone's just like, <gasps> and start dragging, uh, drawing their swords, baring their teeth, and he's, uh, Harry looks across the crowd, and then Thomas is just standing there with Justine, just flashes them a thumbs up and gives them a big smile. What happened to that, Thomas? What happened to him? Thomas also showed up to a duel in a, a vampire duel wearing a Buffy the Vampire Slayer t-shirt. Yes. What happened to that guy? <laughs> Too many damn things happened to that guy. Yeah. This is true. <laughs> The, the weight of a mountain crushing his back happened to that guy. I don't think this whole Justice League parallel quite works. Why don't no. we move on to actually discuss the books, then? All right, well, um, any other characters we want to hit before we get into it? Like Butters. Butters. Butters is the best thing. Polka will never die. Polka will never die! <laughs> Greatest oh. battle cry ever. The scene... That that end scene is is like the crowning moment of awesome for the Dread universe. I, um, yeah, <laughs> no argument. Polka powered like, zombie dinosaur. Yeah, like like at the end of Changes, you know, he's fighting his way up an Aztec temple, fighting, uh, go, you know, trying to kill the uh, the vampire king. They're wading their way through uh, uh, hordes of uh, vampire ninjas. They're summoning up uh, 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 ancient bird warriors and and calling down the thunder of Thor, and God God is speaking on the battlefield. But you know what? In the back of my mind, I'm just thinking, but there's no zombie dinosaurs of pol- powered by Polka here. I mean, really. That's kind of hard to top. It's, it really is. It's going to be tough. Like, he he's already sort of set the, he's set the books up for the end, and I don't know if uh, at the end of, what is it, Hell's Bells or Empty Night or whatever the last book's called, if he can top zombie T-Rex. Maybe maybe Harry can like Voltron a bunch of dinosaurs together and punch out Cthulhu. Yes, exactly. Or maybe he, he can like go back in time because you know Harry's totally gonna break all the laws of magic at, uh, by the end of this. Uh, series. Oh yeah, he's gonna go back in time and bring dino- real life dinosaurs back. And he's gonna use his his got tied dinosaur to step on Nicodemus. Yeah, oh, nice. and grind him underneath uh, uh, a raptor claw. He's gonna he's gonna get like a he's gonna have like Diplodocus uh, heads for arms and uh, reach all the way across the battlefield and pull the noose tight around his neck so that he'll be weak. So you gotta think with strategy. <laughs> Dude, the premise of this whole scenario started with Voltron dinosaurs. He's gonna have a Utah Raptor for his chest that launches pterodactyls out whenever he screams. Okay. Um, this has just totally gone off the rails. We are totally off the rails. Uh, in terms of characters, I want to say that uh, Johnny Marcone, he, he's awesome. Oh, Marcone's Marcone is the uh, uh, like I said, I don't really buy that the uh, the Dresden universe takes place in shades of gray, except when it comes to Marcone. Uh, Marcone is I love him. anytime that he shows up. He's just fantastic because he's he's one of the few characters that I really believe could take Harry in a fight. 
that 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 all he always has the upper hand. And, oh, he's just so so cool. Uh, when they were hunting down the Shroud of Turin, and uh, he's just like, "No, I'm coming with," and he grabs an assault rifle. Fantastic. Well, he well he has the helicopter on hand. <laughs> this is true. Being driven by a Valkyrie. <laughs> And I like that. Not, he, uh, I like Mark that Harry says there's something missing to this scene, and all she does is flip a sh- switch, and the Wagner starts going. The thing I like about Marconi is that um, he's sort of the ultimate example of the devil you know. And yeah. in every situation, as much as Dresden, you know, loathes this guy, he knows that there is like a certain like goodness and a code of honor to this guy, and that's why he keeps dealing with him despite his dislike of him. Because he can't right. bring himself to just blindly hate the guy because of the good things that he does do from time to time. Um, you can also sort of predict what Marconi's going to do. Marconi's going to keep his word. He's going to keep the innocence out of it. He's going to save the little girl first. And even if he's going to do terrible things later, you can count on him to do that, whereas other people you aren't so sure of. Right. The fact is is that in a world of monsters, Marconi is not a monster. He's a bad man, a very bad man, but not a monster. Though, um, I wonder if that's not kind of by design. Uh, because uh, I thought it was so cool that he, that he power-played into uh, signing the Unsealy Accords, so now he, he's like a legitimate force in the supernatural community, and the very first person to do so. So that kind of makes him the representative of all humanity in the Dresden universe. And so if, if the other ones, you know, like the fairy queens who are the ultimate of what a fairy could be, so they're always, you know, manipulating, always making these these horribly unfair deals. Um, and the vampire kings and queens who uh, exemplify their races. I guess Mark Hone is the one that uh, Jim Butcher thinks represents us the most. So deep down inside, he is, he is good. He is decent. He, he does know what's right, but... He doesn't care. He he doesn't operate on that all the time, and so he'll do just the most horrible things uh, to get to get profit. I wonder if, and so I wonder if that uh, maybe I'm just drawing that out of nowhere. Maybe I'm pulling it out of my ass. But uh, I wonder if that isn't just an element of satire that's present within the books. I don't know. We'll have to see, and maybe we'll get some more light on this if we any of us actually reads the uh, Marconi short story that's out. Other characters, I would just want to do drive-bys on is like Billy and the Alphas are amazing just because they're nerds who fight crime and are also werewolves. <laughs> they also wrote a uh, a very good role-playing game. They did. Thomas, we sort of touched on. I just want to point out that what, what, what was the birthday story? It's my birthday too, I think. The, the ending bit of that story punches me in the gut a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, with the, uh, the Rock'em Sock'ems. Yeah, the Rock'em Sock'em robots. Yeah, that was a good story. That was good. <laughs> like, it's very hard. It, it, it's very hard to start a story with. Okay, so Harry goes to a vampire LARP and still gets something good out of it. But I love, I love the situation. There's a, there's a, a straight vampire uh, playing a gay human playing a straight vampire. That's. Just, just describing the, uh, the social dynamics of that game going on, and Harry's just standing there going. What is going on? I don't understand. Put your hand on your head, Harry. That means you're out of character. Uh, if I put my hand on my head and rub my belly, it means I'm out of character and hungry. 
You're always hungry, Harry. That's not out of character. Just so I know, are we going to make any mention of uh, the TV show? Uh, I'm sure we'll do it at the end. Just be like, it's kind of terrible. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Like, the pilot had promise, and then they made turned around and took all that away. Well, I mean, that's the thing, is that, again, the draw of the books isn't necessarily the monster of the week. It's, it's how the characters change and grow and, and, and uh, uh, the, the relationships they get into. And even then, the mon- there really hasn't been a monster of the week in, like, seven volumes. It's been the story of this gigantic vampire war. The TV show was a police, uh, was a police uh, procedural with a comedy supernatural element to it. Yeah, and for some reason they decided to make Harry much more undercover as a wizard, except he's in the Yellow Pages under mm-hmm. wizard. That, that's <laughs> as least undercover as you get. And they gave Bob the Skull a body. Well, that's just easier to shoot. I can forgive them that. Easier to shoot? The other way is to have a skull! Okay, easier for people to interact with on set. A skull! Hamlet was interacting with a skull for th- for hundreds of years, and he's gotten rave reviews. There you go. If it worked for Hamlet, why won't it work for this fucker? All right, you may have me there. Apparent, like according to Jim, he he said that he got um, the big list of reasons for all the changes, and that there was going to be a story as to why Bob was a ghost and why it was a hockey stick. But the series got canceled before that happened. Perhaps mercifully so. Hockey stick? Yeah, Harry doesn't have a staff, he has a hockey stick. stick. What? And a drumstick instead of a blasting rod. What? And he doesn't wear a duster. Nope. (laughs) He's just like in jeans and a sweater, mainly. And he's really, really obsessed with keeping everything secret. So half his conversations uh, with Murphy are him or uh, Connie, because they changed who Murphy was, was just him sitting around, her asking him questions and him saying, it's a wizard thing, I can't talk about it. And then she'd ask more questions and he'd say, it's a wizard thing, I can't talk about it. And Morgan showed up every other episode and kind of wasn't that big a dick. David, you've ruined the joke by not yelling what even more. Wild. That can only bleed so much. Let's go back to the books. Okay. But let, let's talk about the books. So we've got the start of the series, um, Stormfront, Full Moon. They're sort of the seriously Monster of the Week entries of the series. And at the start, it's the, the noir and style narration is dialed way, way up. Like, y- you're almost expecting Harry to say things, narrate things like, you know, work in this town, it's like listening, it's like sitting in a bar with a jukebox with only one sad song. Same crimes going over and over again. And the only ass you get are cigarette butts. <laughs> really sort of schlocky, cheesy, bad noirness. Like, I'm, I'm surprised... Well, what even was the name of the woman who walked into his office that started the plot of the first book? I'm surprised that she was not described as trouble from the minute she walked in. Yeah, she was, but he doesn't say it. <laughs> and, you know, then after that... He starts introducing a longer arcing plot, recurring characters that grow on you, and it gets really a lot better as it goes. Like, we, we see him start the Vampire War, which becomes the running theme, and that the Vampire War starting drags him into wizard politics. 
which is kind of fun to see him interact with other wizards, because you find out they don't like him either. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah. I mean, because he gets pissed off. Like, like, like the Merlin. Yeah. Like, you get Do to you the point. You want to fuck with a guy that's called the Merlin? <laughs> yes, he is the Merlin. Do not mess like with him. Hundreds of years old. I think didn't they say like at one point? I don't know if it was in Turncoat or Changes that like um, that uh, what's this guy's name? Arthur Godfrey. Yeah, I think so. Something like that. Mantry, what, whatever his name is. That the Merlin, when the Merlin, that the Mer, when the Merlin uh, was younger, the United States was still the colonies. Yeah. It's like, doesn't that give you an idea of the man that you're fucking with and maybe shouldn't be? But then again, he's also pissed off. You know, demons, archangels, and now deities. It it's expected of him. I know, but those are nominally at least like antagonists or outsiders. This is like his own team. This is his boss. This is his boss, so to speak. Yeah, th- there's a great moment in uh, Turncoat where you get a look into how every other wizard sees Harry. Of okay, he was brought in for you know breaching the first law of magic when he was 16. He does all this crazy stuff in Chicago. Like, the man rode a zombie dinosaur. Maybe we shouldn't let him do as much as he does. And then when he's confronted with that, it's like, you know, is it anyone, is it any one of the people think that you're like some crazy guy who's about to descend into evil? But yet, all of the young wardens, they love him. Well, he's funny and charming. And he kicks ass. And he does do the ass kicking. And he really does establish himself uh, a protector figure to them. Like, the, the ghouls raided Cab Kaboom at some one of the later books, and he goes off and finds them, and burns them a- apart, inch by inch. That was a nice little bit of murder right there. That was some fun murder. So in terms of the novels, um, you know, one thing that I found was that, um, you know, the books get progressively better, but after the, ha- like, about the halfway point, like, I was reading, I'd read a book, I'd be like, damn, this is the best book so far in the series. Then I would read the next one in the book, and then I'd be like, damn it, no, this is the best one in the series. Then I read the next one, and it's like, no, this is the best one. It just it just keeps happening like over you, and over. You, you, do, you do see uh, Jim Butcher improve as an author every time. And Jim is really, really good about paying off uh, long-time readers. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, because he he knows you have like expectations going into scenes, and what one of the uh, little secrets of storytelling is that uh, if you're a good storyteller, it's not surprising the audience that you want to do. You want the audience to know exactly what's going to happen a second before you do it, so they have the pleasure of thinking that they're so smart they figured it out, and then rewarding them for it by letting it happen. And that's what happens in every single book. Like, the the plot will twist and turn. You're like, I don't know what happens next. And then everything will just click. And you're like, oh, something's going to go blow up. And then everything blows up. You're like, yeah, because you just want it so bad. uh, Characters like, um, well, like the little, uh, the Lashiel arc. Where you have all these all these little uh, uh, things just building in the background. Never, it was, it's never you know a major uh, uh, a main plot in any of those books. But having uh, but when uh, 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 Lash finally uh, kind of redeems her, herself at the end, it's really affecting because you know he's built up that character over the course of three or four books, and you've gotten to know know her, know that she's 
she's dangerous, but she she was also always uh, uh, an aide to, to Harry. And to finally pay that off is so satisfying, you know? And similarly, as much as uh, what happened to Shira was a huge sort of punch in the gut, what happened to Michael hurt really hard because he'd been around, you know, eight books by that or five or six books by that point. Sometimes the faith in the Kevlar don't help. (laughs) But in the end, it kind of worked out better for him because it gave him the one thing that he always wanted, which was to be able to live his life with his family and say, like, you know, I've already taken my licks. I've done my duty. It's time for someone else to take up the call. So that, it wasn't, like, completely a lose-lose for him, even though, you know, his body got ravaged yeah, and, and shot up and stuff. Well, and I think even if his... I don't think he would have retired ever unless his body had been wrecked to hell. Cause, right. Because he's, he's that kind of guy. I know, right, but, like, you know, even he's aware of, like, his limitations of his mortality, because before that... You know, he was saying to to some. He made some comment like, uh, "I get the feeling that I won't have the sword much longer." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny that that uh, uh, the way God God's way of telling Michael maybe maybe you should uh, take a little breather is by having him uh, suffer ma- uh, major mortal wounds. Yeah. Get shot up all dangling from a helicopter. Some people get gold watches when when they retire. God gives you a bunch of vampires to shoot you up with uh, with some machine guns. But there's a heck of a retirement plan. Yeah. That's true. You know what character we forgot? Oh. Harry's first girlfriend. Oh. oh Susan. No, Susan, Elaine. Yeah. Oh, Elaine. Well, first girlfriend well, in the books, so to yeah. speak. But both of them, really. How do you guys feel about Susan? Because she she kind of uh, uh, she's sort of our window into the vampire war. The thing about Susan is, and you know, what I think is good about her that you know even Harry realizes later on is that um, you know she is an example of someone paying the price for his um, recklessness. I, I as much as he thinks, well, Harry's always going to blame himself because that's what Harry does is. The, the first couple of novels, Susan sort of ends up being like Lois Lane, always, you know, after that story and always going one step too far and needing rescue. But in book three, unlike Lois Lane in the entire history of Superman, he actually experiences consequences for doing that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she it was her choice to do the dumb thing that she did of, like, I'm going to invite myself to a vampire party. But, you know, she was trying to talk to Harry about it, and he was, like, he was blowing her off. You know, and if he had paid attention, then maybe he might have heard her crazy and they'd be like, bitch, don't do that crazy shit. You're going to get fucked up. Yeah. Right, and that's why Murphy asks him, what's going on? He finally just opens up to her because he doesn't want that to happen again. Yeah, he, um, you know, he realized he learned the lesson of not having the knowledge is not going to necessarily save people. And it should be their choice of if they want to know these things or not. Because look what not having the knowledge did to her. And he does the same thing for uh, Billy the Werewolf in, uh, what was that one? Was that uh, Turncoat? No, it was Changes. It was, it was Changes where he gives him the the, the talk about was, the world? I believe it was. No, it might have been, yeah. No, actually, I think it was Turncoat. Yeah, because that was when, um, yeah, because Kirby died in that book, so yeah, that would have been Yeah, it was Turncoat. Time. Yeah. Where guys like, look, 
I think you're cool, but you know, you can't keep me in the dark anymore, especially if my people are going to die for this sort of stuff. That's that's what you know. Part of what makes um, Susan an interesting character. Also, just the the tragic nature of they both care about each other, but yet they can never be because of her vampiric nature. Now, mm-hmm. sort of like the Buffy Angel sort of thing, but reverse the sexes. And then just the shock of what Harry does to her at the end of Changes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just one of those uh, what I call Dresden moments, which basically is something really fucked up. Well, Changes was a series of those moments of over the course of the book, you actually watch and it's like they destroy his car, they destroy his office, they destroy his home, they destroy his body, they destroy his body, they destroy well presumably his soul, and then it's like he made they then he destroys his own family. Coming back, recurring things from the books is that. David mentioned that Lash was little, almost a C-grade plot for three books, and then it finally pays off. And ever since book, what, five, we've been having little mentions of someone's manipulating all these forces for some reason. Like, Harry starts calling them the Black Council. And this Black Council plot has been mentioned, woven into all these big events, and even retconned into the first two books. But now, now that the vampire is over, I really want to see that become a much bigger part of the next few books coming up to the end. Yeah. Well, you know, there were there were these threats. You know, one thing that uh, that Butcher does is like he'll give you a little bit about something about one of his major plots, and then he'll leave that alone for a while. He'll go to something else, and then he'll come back to this because, you know, even like after the vampire war started, for so, like those first few books after it starts, it's just kind of a thing that's there in the background. You know that he'll hear about from somebody, but he's still busy doing his own stuff. And even there were there were there was one book set during an armistice or a ceasefire in the war too, just so that yeah. he could have an opportunity to be like some necromancers are starting some shit. So now that you know the 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 red court is is uh, gone, yeah, um, there is that. But um, I wouldn't necessarily say that, that the war is over because there's still the black court. Yeah, all and the white forty court. of them. Still, you don't want to mess with the black court. You don't tangle with the forty of them. They're, they they were worth ever uh, you know a few hundred of the reds each. And the white court's probably just sitting back, drinking their uh, dr- drinking their drinks and chortling because that that seems to be their mo is making letting other people wipe out other supernatural forces. They just. Sit back and, and fuck humans. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the black uh, uh, the black council sounds like it's kind of a white uh, a white court affair. I wouldn't be surprised if there were some white court fingers in it, but I'm not totally sure it's all they're doing. Oh, not not well. All- as we know from the white court, uh, from all of these books, um, you know there are these three families that are always at each other's necks, jockeying for for power. Could be that someone there, you know, just has an eye for. Hey, let's take down this bitch Lara and take the White Court for ourselves. That that could be. We still haven't really seen um, the House That Feeds on Despair, whatever their name is. We haven't seen them do anything. Well, there's another seven or eight or ten books at least, so... Yeah, we, we do have a pile coming forward. We, we might Plenty. see them do some stuff. Plenty of time. Plenty of time. Other plot threads to discuss. The only thing that the Dresden Files are missing is robots. Really? I think I think it needs a lot more. Um, hey, if we've had zombie dinosaurs, anything is possible. Yeah, we, it's we, true, right? We have had zombie dinosaurs. 
robots well, could happen. Serious, uh, some serious Frankenstonian uh, action going on. There was there, there's some great YouTube videos of um, a convention panel he did for Comic Con two three years ago, and apparently his right how he comes up with plots for specific books rather than the overarching things is that he just gets interested in some bit of mythology. So. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw... Um, he, he he mentioned seeing Hindu and Persian gods involved, so we might see those happen after... That'd be cool. That'd be cool. I don't know if we'll ever get robots. Well, then, uh, uh, theoretically, one could influence the course of the plots by just sending him big uh, big mythology collections. Like, get some sort of, like, Japanese bestiary and have, like, some hopping uh, umbrellas and uh, one-eyed, uh, one-footed monsters uh, showing up in... Ch- like just weird and hairy out. It's some sort of hideous uh, uh, ink and jaguar man. Oh uh, no! If we if we bring in jaguar man, I'm just gonna be thinking of um, that MST3K episode. Puma man. Puma man. Puma man. <laughs> oh god, I haven't. That's a name I haven't heard in uh, a very long time. Well, I'd oh. be done. Puma man too. <laughs> well, we are gonna see Harry go through the afterlife. What would be awesome? The Bill and Ted's bogus journey approach, where he just seems to see everything before he gets to live again. I think that the way that they're going to resurrect Harry, which they surely will. Yeah. Well, first off, Harry might not be dead. Dead. He might just be in a. Uh, uh, he might just be in a coma, and his uh, his spirit is separated from his body. Like like uh, Karen said, they didn't find a body. Yeah. So. That could be uh, that could be the case, but if, if he is in fact you know uh, like old Marley, better than Dordale, and uh, uh, he's floating around, and they somehow manage to uh, to him back to life, that opens up an interesting niche in the uh, uh, and mechanic in the in the Dresden universe by which old villains can uh, can come back. Or maybe it'll just be like that weird bit of Dragon Ball Z after Goku died the second time and he had to fight Freeze again, and that took like three minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's. I mean, if if anybody can come back to life, uh, just given like the right the right uh, supernatural connections, then you know what does that mean? It could mean that uh, some of the villains that he's uh, that he's killed uh, beforehand, that the, that the Black Court King could uh, could return to life at the end, uh, or it could be that his uh, his mom has been uh, operating the Black Court uh, behind the scenes. Or something like that. That is one that I'm excited to see pay off in the future, is what exactly Harry's mom was planning. Well, as, as Robert Jordan uh, would used to say many, many times when asked all sorts of questions, Raffo, read and find out. Yeah. But pointless speculation is so much fun. I want to know now. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least unlike Robert Jordan... We will probably see this series end within, you know, a few years. Hey, uh, you know, Wheel of Time will be over in 2012, so just in time for the end of the world. Yeah. Yes, along with everything else. Yeah, but see, they need to bring in a second guy to finish Wheel of Time. Only because Jordan died, you know. Couldn't be helped. I suppose not. What's your favorite uh, scene in a Dresden book? Yeah, let, let's do that to finish up. Hmm. And uh, uh, zombie ti- uh, zombie dinosaur doesn't count. Yeah, we, we've already sort of said that that's number one, uh, unapproachable. The, this is honorable mentions. 
Number two is fighting the Xenomorph. Yeah, fighting the Xenomorph was awesome. One scene that I just find kind of amusing is um, at the end of um, whatever book it was that this happens that um, that Dresden takes on Molly as his apprentice, and they go back to his place, and he's like, like, look, listen, you know, you got to pay attention to whatever I say, and yada, yada, and whatever, whatever. And she's like, yeah, I'm sure you'll teach me lots of stuff. And then she, like, gets naked. And he's <laughs> like, yo, uh-uh, this, that... Uh, this ain't that. This ain't that kind of. Uh, this ain't that kind of a relationship. Put your clothes back on. After what is it, he that he dumps water all over. He dumps a bucket of cold water all over her. No, he, yeah. he pulls the the melt off from his ice box. From his ice box. So yeah. that's about two degrees above zero Celsius. And he just pours and, and it over that. her young, nubile, naked body. That that's up there. I'm gonna say from from book two, reaching back. Him working thaumaturgy on a Snoopy doll. <laughs> let's let's bet let's throw a werewolf hell of a far by doing bad things to a stuffed Snoopy. Yes. Oh, one other thing that I enjoy um, when uh, when he's fighting the uh, the plant monster, his constant uh, attempts while he's fighting it of um, thinking of a name to call it other than plant monster. <laughs> because plant monster just sounds so generic and lame. And then points to Murphy for killing it with a chainsaw. Yes. Or in that that same uh, that same scene when they're running around inside the Walmart that um, what was it? He like dropped like the golf balls or something that caused it was her marbles. Trip. Yeah, it's like Harry, that's not a plan. Like, that's a Looney Tune. She's like, yeah, some asshole. I tripped over all these marbles. He's like, oh yeah, wow, what what a wonder. I wonder who did that. I got two. Okay. When Kincaid, uh, when Kincaid's up in the shed aquarium, up in a nest with a sniper rifle, and he just starts picking, uh, picking demons off one by one, and uh, Harry's like, "Wow, this guy is dangerous." That was that was very, that was awesome. And uh, any scene with Kincaid is awesome. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, I would. I like how the RPG describes Kincaid. He's a player character who never stopped adventuring. <laughs> I like the uh, uh, when Harry's like, well, you gotta watch out because I have a death curse. He's like, oh please, I would kill you with a high-powered rifle from a mile away. You would never even know that I was there, and you wouldn't have enough time to levy a death curse even if I did. And Harry's like, oh, he's like, shit, I never thought of that. Wow, this guy's got a plan. <laughs> and of course, when he dies, he's taken out by a high-powered rifle. From a mile, a mile away. <laughs> Which, you know, just that whole scene is like, it's so horrible that, you know, he's standing outside, he's like, yeah, I'm gonna get on with Murphy, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, he feels something, and he looks down, and he's like, hey, um, you know, who, who splattered red paint over the boat, and, you know, why did I choose to wear this shirt with bullet holes in it? <laughs> it's like, like, and then he realizes, like, oh, I've been shot. Now I I'm like drowned. that. Uh, when I first read uh, read that or listened, I guess I was like, "Really, Harry? You're like, uh, uh, you didn't realize that you were shot when you put on the shirt with the bullet hole in it." And then it's like, "No, actually, Harry probably has a lot of shirts with bullet holes in them." Yeah, it would it wouldn't be so out of the ordinary for him to to put on a shirt with uh, a bullet hole in it because, as you know, people are constantly telling him like how much he looks like crap in every book. Mm-hmm. You know, that his hair's a mess, that he hasn't shaved, that his clothes are crappy. 
having beaten up clothes is, I would expect completely. I would, I would be surprised that he has shirts that don't have bullet holes or knife cuts or, or claw marks or burns. claw marks or blood stains or whatever. Bizarre dried uh, viscous fluids from uh, nether beasts, ooze demon monsters, ooze demon bits. Yeah, so that's completely uh, to be expected that, that he would have shirts with bullet holes in it. Actually, I, I do believe I've come up with the second most awesome thing of the series. Wouldst thou like jelly in thine donut? Yes. <laughs> Negotiating with the head hitman of the summer court by calling in a favor to get a donut. Hey, it worked. It it was a damn good donut. So now that we've talked about all these awesome things, uh, I guess we should mention something that's that's not awesome, and by that I mean the TV show. Well, uh, yeah, we can go in. You know what? I've got all this recorded. We'll just use the bits from that first discussion, unless you have any more to add about the TV show. I, I do, actually. Oh, go nuts, then. Well, you know, I had never seen the TV show, and then I started reading the books. I was at a friend's house, and he had the DVDs. So uh, me and my friend, uh, Pedro, who got me into the series, who you, Scott, would uh, more recognize as Pedo Bear South. Yeah, I, it's Pedo Bear South. Yeah, you know, he you and I are taste. big fantasy fans and big film... No, well, it wasn't his DVDs. Yeah. We were at another friend's house. You know, he's a big fantasy fan like me when we're both big noir fans, so, of course, uh, the series was appealing to both of us, and he was the one who pushed me to read it. So we were at this other friend's house, and he had the DVDs, and we're like, we've heard that this show is crap. Why don't we just watch some of it for ourselves? So what I wanted to watch to see how it was was uh, Stormfront, which was supposed to be the pilot episode originally, but then they rejiggered things, did a new pilot, and then it just got shuffled off and edited down into just being an average episode, like in the middle of its run. Yeah. So my only exposure to the series is just that one episode, and that was all that I could stomach because it was just such a departure from everything that makes the series good, the book series, and such a dilution of everything. It's just like a it was just a really mediocre product, you know. The depiction of things, the the way they changed the characters around, uh, the way they changed the whole story around about Victor Sells, it was just really uninspired. And you, so you have to remember, Chris, is Stormfront is the one people say is okay of the series because they do get at least a few details right, like him having a house and an office. <laughs> yeah. Well, if that's the one that's okay, it's only because I guess. They somewhat based it off of pre-existing material, whereas the rest, they just made it up themselves. I would think that from what I've seen of this, there's just an example of, I know that, you know, you can't change, you can't uh, adapt something perfectly from any medium to another medium. Obviously, some things are going to change. That's just the necessity of, you know, whatever medium that you're moving into now. But there's just some basic things of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And the, the sad thing is that Jim Butcher actually does like the TV show. That might be more uh, of a political, not-burning-bridges sort of thing. Yeah. Because who knows what the future might hold. You know, Maybe somebody else will want to do, will try a TV show again, or a miniseries, or a movie, or whatever. And if they see that this guy's like, you know, shit-talking uh, sci-fi channel and production companies, maybe they don't feel so inclined to work with him. 
could be. I do know he is counting, literally counting the days until the TV and movie rights revert back to him. And I'm sure he'll be very accommodating and and generous to the TV show until those days are done. Right. And I mean, it's not like there isn't a... Like, that came out kind of when the only market for this stuff was the Buffy the Vampire Slayer crowd. Now with now there's Twilight, there's True Blood. I mean, True Blood is basically just uh, uh, the Dresden Files for girls. And in the South. And in the South. Like, after a while, HBO is going to run out of material to adapt for that. Or maybe there's somebody else will want to jump in on something. You know, now you've got AMC doing The Walking Dead, and that was a huge hit for them, so maybe they're going to want to try something else that's supernatural, and uh, maybe they'll pick up something now that they're becoming sort of like a big force in cable. I just want to... I'd almost rather see a movie or miniseries just because the later books, you're going to want to see them with a budget. Like The first couple you can get away with me with cheaping out, but I really don't want to see a low-budget version of the end of Changes. I just don't. No. Well, hey, you know, Game of Thrones is coming out next year on HBO, and they're taking the um, the route of doing a season a book. Yeah. So if that's successful, then uh, maybe you could see something like that being done with more books. You know, uh, Legend of the Seeker was kind of doing the same thing, although they only got through two books before getting canceled, doing the whole season a book thing. I don't think it should be a season a book, because one book, it's more than a movie, but it is less well, than a season of TV, like True Blood. Two, in those two cases, blood those just like, drags to a crawl when you extend it one book over a season. Yeah, but it, but those are two blood books are like very small. You know, the ice and fire and sort of truth books are like ginormous books. So with a know, lot of Dresden, plot threads going on. Yeah, Dresden. You know, by contrast, I would expect you could probably fit in maybe two books a season or more, depending on how long your season is. I'm Got just some of the short that, stories in there too. If you yeah, fill things out for a season. Yeah. Uh, it's something that could happen, you know, if uh, if these things are successful, if Game of Thrones proves to be successful of taking this route of adapting uh, a book and trying to stick to the book rather than just taking a few elements and, you know, just running hog wild and making up a bunch of stuff. Okay, moving from lame to average, I guess we should mention the Dresden Files comic. If I haven't read it. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Like, I, I read Welcome to the Jungle. And I was like, okay, this is a nice little story about Harry helping a gorilla. I'm sort of sad that it didn't have him actually team up with the gorilla, all uh, buddy cop style. That was probably a missed opportunity. But I'm not a fan of the art style, but I want to get into Clint Eastwood territory. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the art style, but I think I'll leave that to David to judge because he's Mr. Art Man. It was, you know, it's... Uh, I hate to call something standard comic art. That that makes it sound like uh, all comics are the same, but it was standard comic art. All comics are the same. Like I guess that that almost fits for for uh, the Dresden Files because the problem with the Dresden Files is because it's set in such a uh, in such a realistic world. There's not a lot of room for art direction. You know. Chicago needs to look like Chicago, not like uh, some sort of uh, beautiful, fantastical panoply of uh, of uh, uh, human engineering or uh, or magical interference. Uh, so, you know, the fact that the people look like people and the city looks like the city. By the way, I'm from Illinois. I live uh, I live about an hour away from Chicago. I like to travel up to Chicago a lot. Were were your high school years written by John Hughes? 
No. Ah. Uh, my town is way uh, uptight to be Shermer, Illinois. Sadly. Um, which I know, right? It's it's fun when he gets some of the details right, like the fight in uh, uh, the fight in the shed aquarium with the dolphins. Like he got that 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 place pretty down pat. And listening to the story, I could close my eyes and picture myself right there, and it was awesome. Uh, in that in that birthday uh, thing though, where where they were fighting in uh, Schaumburg Mall or in uh, Woodfield Mall uh, in Schaumburg. Yeah. Like as soon as he said mall, I was like, oh, they went to Woodfield. I love Woodfield. It's a great mall. But you know, like you can't see uh, you can't see any of the stores to the to the entrances. There are no cafes on the inside. There's the Rainforest Cafe, but there was no mention of awesome animatronic animals. Well, terrible animatronic animals that are awesome to a young child, and uh, uh, and like the big architectural element of the uh, of Woodfield is that it has a series of sort of uh, randomly placed, just flat. Oh, it's hard to describe. They're not staircases per se, but uh, the uh, the building is built on three levels, and instead of having like uh, uh, escalators or stairs that that kind of connect one level to the other. Uh, there are like these little uh, uh, branches that'll that'll travel up and down between the levels, and they're they're arranged in sort of a haphazard manner, and so it, it kind of feels like an ant colony or something. That, that's always what what I pictured, and I always thought that was really cool. And so when he starts talking about you know throwing these vampires around, I was disappointed that that there was no mention of these awesome walkways or or in the wide open spaces or the fact that. Uh, or that nobody was smashed through the uh, the glass elevators that run through the central courtyard, like, because because Jim Butcher he's he's from like Ohio, right? Yeah, he he's only been to Chicago a couple of times, and it was well after the fourth book was published. <laughs> so like the Shed Aquarium is really good, is because he went there, researched Chicago tourist spots to have cool fights in. Yeah, but so he's not a local and. Yeah, it's not helping him sometimes. Well, you know, in anything, you're going to have this, like, uh, you know, I'm from Miami, so almost any time Miami is depicted on film, I always spot how wrong they get things. Transporter 2, they're on South Beach, and they make a right turn, and suddenly it's downtown Miami on the next street. Or uh, one of the worst offenders, uh, Too Fast, Too Furious, there's a car chase um on I-95 in downtown Miami, although if you look in the, like, the actual surrounding, you can see it's um, I-75 in the Everglades, because last time I checked, there wasn't a swamp in downtown Miami. I actually have the opposite problem. I'm from Toronto, so I see lots of things set in New York and Chicago and go, yeah, I, I buy comics right there. So you're spotting the place that you're, you're spotting Toronto impersonating all these other places. Yeah. So that's and, why Scott Pilgrim was fun because it was Toronto being Toronto. Yeah, you know, and even right. like some of the shows that are that actually are filmed down here, like say Burn Notice and Dexter, even they cheat sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I can um, see it every single time. I actually thought that the Dresden Files RPG uh, had a really funny thing where they lampshaded uh, in the the RPG. Location is a very important part, and the group as a whole kind of creates the character of the city. And uses that to figure out who the major NPCs are, what some of the plot lines are, that sort of thing. And they said, if you've never been, uh, uh, if you want to create a, uh, use a real world location, but you have no information about it, you can Vancouver it. 
And Vancouvering is when you use uh, the city of Vancouver to simulate uh, one of the other cities, uh, 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 any sort of major North American metro, uh, metropolis. It looks close enough. So you just sort of use basic facts and then in the, in the margins, uh, Harry just writes, yeah, right. Nobody would ever buy uh, Vancouver as Chicago, and Bob just has underneath. You'd be surprised. Actually, someone did a really good Google Maps project of just taking the city of Chicago and putting pins in different places from the books. Really? It, yeah, like, not even just um, the big obvious stuff, like, Wrigley Field has no parking, it's like, with a parenthetical note of, has no parking lot, to, like, somewhere on this street, the street wolves have a garage, and... Carpenter house in this suburb sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Harry's uh, Harry's office probably here. Yeah, yeah. Um, whenever it talks about the wolves prowling around the... Uh, uh, they go to the University of Illinois, right? Yeah, I think it is um, University of Illinois. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I've walked through that neighborhood, and, like... Uh, uh, there, there are some shady areas, but it's, it's, it's cool that, that I, that, you know, when they talk about that, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know. There's, there's a lot of low-hanging trees. That's, that's nice. Yeah, it was a cool thing. But back to the comic, it's like, I don't feel the need to, now that Welcome to the Jungle's gone, and I don't think that he's going to be doing any more original stories, I don't think I feel the need to buy the series again, just so I can have average-ish comic book art for it all. Like, if they do another original story, I will probably at least get it from the library or something, but I don't think I'm going to obsess over it the way I do the novels. Okay, um, any final thoughts, gentlemen? Go read these damn books. Go listen to these damn books. Polka will never die. Good night. Uh, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Please don't worry Commons license. Check out our website at sbopodcast.blogspot.com. Check us out on Twitter at sbopodcast or our Facebook page at I Thought They Smelled Bad on the Outside. Or kick me an email at sbopodcast at gmail.com.